Have you ever seen a doctor for an issue only for your concerns to be dismissed? Have you ever tried to fit in so hard that you lost who you actually were? In today's episode, I talked to Maggie Haraberta about her path to becoming a neurodiverse affirming business owner and her own recent autism diagnosis. It reminds me of a behavior bite about not being listened to and feeling uncomfortable. It was New Year's Day, and I'd gone with my brother to Denny's for breakfast. It was obviously busy, but the section we were sat in was an absolute mess. No one was getting any service, not even a glass of water. After about 45 minutes, we just got up and left. While I understand the wildness of food service, it's a great reminder to not put up with being ignored and mistreated in any aspect of life. Welcome to Behavior Bites with Rosie Eats, where we share a virtual meal with behavior analysts, psychologists, educators, and other helping professionals. Building a community can be hard when you're always pouring into others. So pull up a chair, grab your favorite food, and let's dig in. Hello, hello. I'm your host, Rosie, and I'm so excited to be sharing a meal with today's guests. We actually are coming up on our one-year friend anniversary. Over the past year, we have bonded over child-led ABA, Ascent, and of course, donuts. Today's guest is Maggie Haraberta. Hi, Maggie. Hi, Rosie. Is there anything you'd like to share before our meal is served? I just want to say thank you for having me on. I'm really excited. I've never done this before, so it's my first time um, being on a podcast, and I'm, I'm just really excited to be here. I'm very excited that you're here, too, and I hope you're hungry. So for the chef's whim, the amuse bouche today, could you tell us what your Instagram name Unfurling Littles means? Yeah, so Unfurling Littles is the name of my company that I started. And the name comes from a client of mine. There was a moment about two years ago when I got to the session and she went, look, Maggie, the leaf is unfurling. And the way that she said it really stuck with me. And I loved the imagery of the process of a leaf opening up. Um, And it's a lot of what I think about in my practice today in that I'm not trying to change children in any way, Mm -hmm. shape or form, but really trying to help them open up to become them full selves um, and to really begin to accept themselves fully. And so that's a little bit of where of where the name came from. And I also love plants. So I have over. Like 150 houseplants. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely a special interest of mine. Um, Yeah, I wanted to try and think how I could meld meld the things together that I love, hence the name Unfurling Littles. Wow, that is a really fun story. I I don't think I've heard it. I thought I knew the story, but I don't think so because I'm tearing up over here because that's just a really beautiful way of putting it of like, to even enhance like the imagery more of like you aren't trying to take a leaf and like iron it down flat Mm -hmm. you know you're kind of letting the leaf unfurl open up like on its own time Mm -hmm. Um, because if anyone I'm not a plant owner because my cats will eat anything but I imagine if you forced a plant to open it would probably just die right like that leaf would fall off so oh that is great imagery I love it thank you Yeah, exactly. I mean, the leaf would break. Um, And so I think a lot about it with my work with children in that they do progress and develop on their own timeline. And it's not up to me to iron out the leaf in my timeline, but to really help them and their caregivers and the people in their lives accept that like their process is theirs. And I'm just there to help water and groom and, and help take care of and help that process in their time. I love it so much. Thank you. For our next course, appetizers, how did you get into behavior analysis? So my uh, stepping into the field was a little bit unconventional. I was originally going to school to be a pastry chef. And then on a whim, I was um, touring Johnson & Wales out in Rhode Island. And I stopped at University of Vermont with my dad. And right when I stepped on the campus, I'm like, no, this is it. This is where I'm going. I don't know I'm going to study, but this is it. Um, And at the time, I had had a long history of nannying and babysitting and working as a camp counselor. And I was like, well, I love kids. So I guess maybe I'll work with kids. And my um, undergraduate degree was originally early childhood development. I took a job as a personal care assistant to a 
a six-year-old autistic boy. And I just absolutely, absolutely fell in love um, with working with him and being around him. And so I changed my major to special education um, and would spend whenever I wasn't in school, I was over at his house working with him. And one day I went to one of his ABA sessions at his school and I was absolutely mortified by what I saw. They mm. were working on flashcards and um, using a box of like chips and cookie crumbs as reinforcements. Mm. Mm -hmm. And something about the way they treated him and the way they were talking to him, it just really didn't sit well. But I knew that I loved working with this population. Um, shortly after college, I started working in early intervention. And again, I found myself gravitating to working with autistic children. So I was thinking about how do I want to advance my career forward to work with this population? And everything I researched said ABA. Mm -hmm. but I really only had that one experience and it wasn't a good experience. Mm -hmm. And University of Vermont was very progressive. And so they talked about ABA and a light that wasn't too kind. Um, and so I was really worried, but I ended up attempting to go for my master's at Drexel. And again, I found myself kind of butting heads with professors at times because they were talking about interventions and things that just didn't make sense to me. And I took a couple of jobs as an RBT, but again, I, I really wanted to do what was being asked of me. And so I ended up hiring a behavior analyst to supervise me privately while I worked in early intervention. And I quickly saw that this child-led approach that I already had from uh, working in Vermont from at a, in the undergraduate degree, I was a preschool teacher for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so the way that I interacted with the children was all through child-led uh, approach. And we followed Reggio Emilia, which is a, a type of schooling. And so I loved that child-led approach, and I thought, well, how can we meld this with ABA? And then in my master's program, I received uh, an opportunity to work on a research study with University of Pennsylvania on Project Impact, which mm -hmm. within the first couple of lessons, I'm like, wow, this is <laughs> this is child-led. We are following the yeah. child's lead, and it distinctly says, follow the child's lead. And so it just made sense to me, this is the way that we need to be doing it. And mm -hmm. so that's really what shaped my practice to be where it was. But I think from day one, my motive in getting into behavior analysis was to help to shift the field to a more child-led approach. So in my my personal practice, I've never really done discrete trial training. Um, learning doesn't take place at a table unless it's initiated mm -hmm. by the child. But really, everything I do is from that, that child-led uh, mindset. I think that's one of the things that really bonded us was I also come from a background of people doing and telling me to do things that I didn't really agree with. And I also thought about leaving the field completely because I was like, if this is what I have to do, uh, I can't, I can't do this for much longer. Like I can't, I just felt icky <laughs> a lot of the times. But then I would think about I call them like the in-between times, like the in-between the table work times when we're just playing. I'll never forget like one time I was working with a child. I'd been with him for maybe a year and a half. And, you know, a lot of his first sessions were crying for like two hours, especially when I was training with him and like watching what they would do. And I'm just like, eh, this is what I have to do. But then fast forward after like developing a relationship and really trying to like listen to not just his words, but like his, his body language and his cues and everything and letting him voice in whatever way, not just vocally, but like voice basically assent withdraw before I even knew what that term was. We started developing a really tight relationship and that he would tell me things that I don't think he really ever felt comfortable telling people. And it, it sounds, so I'm going to tell you what he said. So we're laying on our bellies playing with cars. And I think I was training someone with him and he is rolling the car and a uh, bus in front of his eyes. And uh, the person that was with me is like, oh, like, shouldn't he set up? Like, shouldn't we kind of like, be breaking that stem? 
And I was like, um, I was like, well, I don't like one, I don't really see any harm in it. And then two, I asked him, I said like, oh, client, I was like, um, you know, like, what are you doing? Like, usually we sit up when we play or something. And he said, no, Rose, I'm driving the bus. And I was like, hmm, what does that mean? And he like, look, he like showed me, he like crouched down and like brought the car up to my eye and made it at the same angle so that it looks like you are the bus driver. And he's like, no, Rose, I drive the bus. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Like, that's brilliant. Like, (laughs) I mean, like one, we talk about not breaking, you know, like stems and stuff that aren't hurting, but also like being open to the possibility that it's not just a stem, that there's actually like a function behind it. That's amazing to be able to like drive a, you know, like a pretend car. Yeah, absolutely. I think when we're able to take a step back and for a second observe and try and see from our clients' perspectives, it's been amazing the things that I've learned um, mm-hmm. just by stemming with my clients and building that connection. And for me, it's really a way to honor that this is important to them. And so it's important to me too. Um, And I found from that place of connection that we really can work on challenging things. We can do things that are hard, but it's from a place of connection and mutual trust. So let's jump into our palate cleanser course. Can you tell us what Donut Friday is? Yes. Uh, So I have a very strong love for donuts. I always have. But, um, you know, getting into my adulthood, I realized I cannot eat a donut every day. And so I have reserved Fridays to be my donut Friday. And it's really been super fun, especially working in early intervention because I'm all over the city and now different counties. And so I get to try a donut in a different place every Friday. So it's something I I look forward to a lot. You go to like a different bakery every Friday? Yep. Yep. So I try and go somewhere different. Obviously, I, it's not always possible because I've been to <laughs> most of the donut shops around Philadelphia, but I have some some favorites that I'll go back to if I, you know, I'm in a similar place where I don't have time to go somewhere new. Mm-hmm. But the idea really stems from um, I love routine and I also love mm-hmm. things to look forward to that are part of my routine. And Donut Friday is definitely one of those aspects of my routine that uh, brings a lot of comfort for me knowing, okay, yeah. it's today, it's time for my donut. <laughs> so what is your favorite donut? So I love uh, out in Lancaster County. I'm in Philadelphia, but in Lancaster, there's a very large population of Amish and they make these ones that it's a long john. And mm. I like the powdered one with the white cream inside. And mm. uh, next Monday, we're going up to Lancaster. And so what, I, what I'll do is I buy the donuts in bulk and then I'll freeze them and get to have one every Friday. Nice. It's like a, like a vanilla cream inside. Yes. Yes. So good. I think it probably goes back to my, my dad shares my love for sweeties and something we would always do together is go get donuts. And so when I, whenever I have a donut, even if he's not there, I still think about him. Yeah. Oh, that's even, that's even sweeter. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting married next October and I would like to have a donut cake instead of a wedding cake. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Something I always do for my birthday. I like to stack donuts to make a cake instead of doing an actual yes. cake. So that's yeah. the, that's the goal for the wedding. We also got married in October. I did have a cake. I don't know. I looked at cakes and I, and I wanted a cake also. I wanted like a semi-naked cake. But I also got a donut truck to show up and he had like little bags so people could take donuts to go. So that was kind of like party favors too. And and then he made one big, big donut with like little donut holes. So that was also a cake. So I kind of had like two cakes. It was blueberry, a blueberry donut cake. That was really good. Yeah, so fun. That's a great idea. So I fully support you getting a donut cake because it's fun I know it's like quote-unquote trendy but in a good way too that like more donut places are doing it Mm -hmm. and different ways that they can display it there's like the donut walls 
Yeah, we have federal donuts here and they do a peg wall and my favorite mm. donut, um, I think it's a, it's a something with lavender and anyone mm. who knows me in like real life around Philly knows I absolutely love lavender, like everywhere in my house, there's something that has a lavender scent to it. Mm. Um, and so the idea of having lavender donuts there is very appealing to me. Yeah. Okay, I think we could spend another hour talking about donuts, but I really want to get to our entree because it's one big dish for us to dig into. So you actually received a new diagnosis. Would you be comfortable telling our listeners kind of that process? Yeah, absolutely. So I recently received my autism diagnosis. It's been quite a process, so I'm happy to, to talk through it a little bit. Really what kind of got the ball rolling for this is I'd always worked with younger children, uh, usually under the age of five. And the last two years, I started working with some older autistic females. And I was shocked how much I was relating to them and everything that they were talking about and doing. And I had a few clients ask me if I was on the spectrum. And it had really not occurred to me in that way that I might Mm -hmm. be. Um, growing up, like there was a few, a few indicators, like I didn't talk until I was three and was in speech therapy at two. Um, I was a toe walker, always had like quirky behaviors. When I was in middle school, I was voted most interesting, which really just means weirdest. (laughs) (laughs) And so looking back now that I know I can see it more. And when I was going through the questionnaires with my mom, um, it just made sense. Both of mm-hmm. us were like, wow, like this is this is shocking and at the same time not shocking. Mm-hmm. I think it's also a testament to the way I've been able to connect with my clients in a way mm-hmm. that some people around me or different people I've worked with have been confused by. And mm-hmm. what I've learned throughout the diagnostic process is it's very typical for neurotypical people to have a different level of connection. And so when I originally thought that I should go for an assessment, I met with a psychologist and was misdiagnosed first as bipolar, which Mm -hmm. is very, very typical. Um, Mm -hmm. I've come to learn. And it didn't make sense. When I got the diagnosis, I was talking to friends and family. I'm like, this, I just don't, I don't see this at all. And I was going through the report with a friend and things were jumping out like difficulty with nonverbal reasoning, rigidity with routine, sensory processing challenges. Yeah. That just sounds like (laughs) autism. And I'm like, wow, it really does. And so I reached out to my friend, Jamie, she's from speech baby LLC and is an autistic speech therapist that I've gotten close with. And I was talking with her a little bit about where my head was at. And she had suggested I reach out to a psychologist here in Philadelphia, and I did. And within 15 minutes of meeting him, he started referring to me as autistic. And mm. when he said that, it's like, oh, like my, like my heart just melted. And it's like mm. I felt seen in a way that I hadn't before. Mm-hmm. And I was telling him my story and kind of what got me to this point. And um I'll uh, I'll go back a little bit to share that when I was 13, I developed an eating disorder. And then when I was 16, I became an alcoholic um, and ended up getting sober around 22. I then was in a series of abusive relationships. Um, There was a lot of trauma throughout my drinking. And when I was talking to the psychologist, he was telling me how I just told like the autistic female story Mm. and What I didn't realize is is I had been trying so many different ways to cope and soothe myself um, because I was trying so hard to fit in and just Mm -hmm. be part of whatever people I thought that I needed to be to be a part of. And so when I was going through this process with him, it was just uh, so incredibly validating to be able to share my story with someone and have him listen to me in a way that no one else had. Because I had brought up concerns about something going on throughout the years with different therapists I've worked with, and they always brushed it off because mm-hmm. I'm 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 a woman who doesn't require a whole lot of support, right. um, and I think I'm passing as neurotypical. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But what I didn't realize is that I'm just really good at masking, Uh (laughs) just really, really good at masking. And throughout this process, my psychologist has been encouraging me to find moments when I can unmask. And it's pretty amazing that I created a lifestyle that surrounds myself with other autistic people. And I get to mask when I'm with them. Uh So I just talked, (laughs) I talked for a long time there. Do you have any questions about anything? anything (laughs) That wasn't that long. That wasn't that long. I just want to keep on listening. You were diagnosed at what age? At 28. Just a couple months ago, right? Yeah. So that's basically 28 years of not really having an answer, like having having questions and having an inkling, but 28 years of not quite feeling like things were right. And I find with a lot of the autistic women or even ADHD women that I talk to, there's just a feeling of like, there's something wrong with me that Mm -hmm. I'm not living how I'm supposed to, I can't concentrate or I can't socialize or I can't, whatever it is, like I, 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 instead of like, well, my brain is just different type of things. But what is amazing is that you stuck through it and you were like, okay, let me reach out to other people. Let me reach out to Jamie, who's an autistic um, speech therapist and, and, you know, and try to see, if I can relate to her, if she has any suggestions and kind of talking to your friends and then pulling your mom in. And it sounds like your mom was being supportive. That's the amazing part. Yeah, it's true. I really was surrounded by so many people that really um, were, were just supporting me. I called some friends during this process and then I go, well, yeah, I've always thought you were autistic. <laughs> I'm like, well, why didn't you tell me? Because <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. And yeah. it felt like for years there was something there, but I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. And I would get so, so upset with myself. And I have this like core memory that always comes up that I had this friend coming over who was really into science and I was probably about 10. And so I like went to the library at school and checked out all these science books because I knew mm-hmm. she was coming over and like laid them around my room and pretended to be interested in them because I thought it's what would like make us friends. And right. there were so many times throughout my my life when I was younger that I would do that. Like I would pick up on something that these girls were doing and then, okay, well, now I'm going to do that too. And Mm -hmm. so what I found, especially when I got sober at 22, that I really didn't know myself at all or what Mm -hmm. I, what I liked or what I cared about because I had spent so long just trying to be like any of the people that were in my life Mm -hmm. that I had a little bit of like, um, I don't know, like a, like a identity crisis. Yeah. I can think of the word, yeah. Identity crisis. Like I didn't know who I was or what I liked or what I wanted to do with myself. So to backtrack a little bit, what kind of like questionnaires and tests did they do originally? So there was a bunch of questionnaires that I had to do. One of them was like a sensory profile. I came up very, very different one. I've always had a lot of sensory challenges and my mom and Mm -hmm. I always refer to ourselves as highly sensitive people. Mm -hmm. Um, I get very upset if there's overhead lighting. I'm constantly Mm -hmm. trying to touch things and smell is a big thing for me. So I mentioned lavender, but I always have different sets sense around me to help regulate myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there was uh, some social questionnaires and a rigidity questionnaire uh, that looked a little bit about inflexibility and kind of like set interests, um, necessity for routines and all of that. So the process with meeting with the doctor took about four sessions of meeting with him Mm -hmm. and questionnaires for myself to do for my fiance and then for a caregiver. And I chose my mom to do them. Mm -hmm. So by doing all of that, the end result was the autism diagnosis. And I think what was so amazing about the process is that this doctor that I worked with, um, he really understands the autism pre- presentation in females and mm-hmm. how it can look different. And I believe now if I had been a child today, I probably would have received a diagnosis, mm-hmm. uh, especially with the speech delay and the toe walking. And 
I played by lining up toys. That's what I would do. I would empty out mm-hmm. the drawers and then I would re-put all of my things in. And now I just call it putzing around the house. So putzing is my favorite activity where it's just <laughs> I walk around the house and like move things slightly. <laughs> That's my, the doctor was like, what would you like to do on a Saturday night if you had free? And I was like, putz. I would want to putz around the house. <laughs> Could you please elaborate on what putzing is? <laughs> I think that's interesting. Well, two things like first, that low support uh, masking, neurotypical passing type of thing, because I think that's reoccurring in a lot of autistic women. And I can start seeing it at a really young age with a lot of my clients. It's one of the things that I talk really deeply about with with all of my parents but especially the girl presenting, I should say. Clients, I mean, I'm seeing it as young as like four, kind of like holding it together and then coming home and just like letting it go. And so like giving them that space and words to kind of express, you know, like, Rose, I just need to like go in my room and do X, Y, and Z, whether it's lining stuff up, putzing around their room or you know maybe they want to dance and and shake it out but I think that's a really important point for any of the listeners to kind of take away that if you look closely enough you'll start kind of noticing that in a lot of your clients and don't take it as like a win that like oh their their symptoms are diminishing and they are I can't even bring myself to say it, but like be able to fit in in like society because mm, that's not really what we should be aiming for. We should be aiming for our clients to be themselves and comfortable and have functional skills, whether it's communication, daily living, socialization, all of that, but do it in their own way. That's not inherently almost harming them, that they can't be themselves and make authentic friendships instead of just you know little Maggie going to the library and bringing all of the science books home and saying look at all my books I'm like you I'm your friend right please yeah it's hard to see and I agree I see it in in as young as children as four and it's it's hard to watch because my for me I just want to be able to show them and 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 teach them that they're accepted and I accept them fully and I think one of the biggest ways I've I've done that is by like we were talking about with the metaphor of the leaf opening, but sh- teaching their parents and their teachers and their mm-hmm. whatever caregivers are in their life that their timeline is their timeline. And mm-hmm. I'm here just to support them along that path, but I'm not going to be pushing them to places that they're not ready for or that mm-hmm. tell me that they don't want to go. And to me, that's really the way that we we teach them that that their brain type, that they're the way they process things is okay that it doesn't have to look like mine or like their caregivers, that it's theirs and it's unique to them. And that I respect that so full heartedly, you know, it's really a gift for me to get to learn about my diagnosis and have words to explain myself more now. And throughout this process, um, you know, I've been able to share, to share my diagnosis with some of the families that I work with. And I've seen how it can change the child's perception of themselves in a way, because I always say, you know, autistic people need autistic people, autistic Mm -hmm. kids need autistic kids, because otherwise we're surrounding ourselves with neurotypical people. And then that's what we think is right. That's what we think we have have to be versus having children or adults or friends, just people in our lives who are like us allows us to have more acceptance for ourselves. And so I always encourage the caregivers I work with to find opportunities for their children to be around other autistic kids mm-hmm. so that they can see that, you know, wow, that child's stimming too. They're also flapping mm-hmm. their hand. Does that mean it's okay for me to do that as well? And mm-hmm. that's the main reasons that I stim with my clients, if they allow me to and, and want me to right, right. it validates that this this thing is important to you and so it's important to me too and like I said before that's the biggest way I build connection with my clients there's always that moment where they look up at me and it's like wow like you see me and you accept me and you accept this thing and, and for me for me doing with them is a way to show that love and respect for them for who they are and what their bodies need the 
representation, I think is important for, for every human being, like to be able to see other humans that look like them, act like them. Um, and this, this is for all demographics, you know, I think black children need to see like more black children and black technicians and BCBAs or even clients that kind of fall into the LGBTQIA2 plus demographic to see other humans that identify with that non-binary and and autistic is just the same and like the intersectionality of those Mm -hmm. so it's always important and I'm glad that you can kind of like show your clients that it's okay Um, one of my company's goals has been to have these kind of like social skills groups that sure we like talk about social skills and we practice little things but really the overarching goal is for them to meet other kids that present like them not exactly the same but to see that and what I've seen happen is a lot of similarities that like I had a child that we knew something was going on, but like he wasn't ready to talk to anyone about it. Um, it'd been going on for a couple of weeks. And then he finally said, um, and he almost didn't, he almost said like, Oh, never mind." But then he finally told us that, uh, other friends, other kids weren't playing with him at recess. And another child in the group was just like, Oh yeah, me too. Like I'm also having that issue. And and like his face was just like what like another person is having like a problem with this and so we able to like talk that out and then I even see I had a slightly younger client who I like to say marches to the beat of his own drum he's very happy and just wants to do his own thing and I think mom has always been kind of scared to bring him out because of like what other kids might think or parents and stuff But coming to these groups, my other clients just inherently like understood him and were just like, oh, like, does he, do you want to play with us? Does he want to play with us? No, that's okay. And like made sure that they watched out when they were playing like tag or whatever, that they didn't like crash into him. But then like when he played hide and seek with us, they're like, oh, like, I'm so happy he's playing hide and seek with us. And it's just, it's just so comforting. (laughs) It, it really is. There was um, here in Philadelphia, I'd started a group that I was calling Connect Through Play. And mm. the goal of the group was to bring neurodivergent children and their caregivers together. And so in the end, we had about four or five parent-child dyads. Um, and all of the children who attended were on the spectrum. And the parents were able to connect with each other and begin to build that acceptance of their Mm -hmm. children because they were seeing that other children were doing things that were similar to theirs. Mm -hmm. That place of connection, I think we're able to, to move towards acceptance. I would really like to try and offer the community more groups like that because it was wonderful for the children. They were young, they were all under three, but more than that for the parents to be able to see that their child didn't have to sit at the circle time. They didn't have to participate in the activities because it was all open-ended child-led play exploration. Mm -hmm. And so they weren't trying to, for lack of better words, like put their child into this box of what they had Mm -hmm. to do. They were free to be who they were and to do what they wanted to do. So I, I really hope to try and do more stuff like that for the community here. I think you bring up a good point about like bringing parents together too, because I think one of the number one complaints that I get from parents is how isolating the experience can be. A lot of times, maybe it's their first child, their only child, or maybe they have two children, but they both are on the spectrum, but then they both present very differently and they just never quite know. And there's social media that they can pop on, but that can be scary too because there's all kinds of people out there on social media and there's people that agree with ABA and people that really want it to burn to the ground and I think on both sides people really want to argue that on social media and it can kind of be scary for parents of like well you know all these autistic adults are sharing their experiences their very true and valid experiences 
and they're against ABA and me as a person, I'm also like, yep, I agree with what you're saying. But then the parents are watching what, you know, a clinician like you or myself are doing. And they're like, it's not lining up. You're telling me I'm abusing my child, but then I'm watching Maggie or I'm watching Rosie do what they do. And it doesn't look like abuse to me. Like it looks like they've really opened up their world and and our world. And, and so it, it doesn't quite line up. So I think having parents meet, you know, like face to face and kind of like discuss these things are a lot easier than, than just being on social media and getting, you know, someone telling you that you're harming your child and you're like, I'm just, I'm just trying to do what's best for them. It's so hard. Um, I think it's so hard for caregivers when they first receive that diagnosis. And one of the services I offer is to go with families for the diagnostic session as an advocate. Mm -hmm. And what, what we almost always get is the paperwork that says ABA um, Mm -hmm. once they receive that diagnosis. And it's so hard because yes, I, I work in ABA, but I have very rarely um, seen an ABA practice that aligns with my values besides my own and some people mm-hmm. I've met on social media, which has been amazing. But that's why I started my company because there's a way to to use the principles without harming kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I fully, fully believe that. But the issue is that we have to get more people to speak up against what's been happening and what continues to happen and to stop saying like, well, well, my practice is different. It doesn't matter Mm -hmm. if I'm doing something different over here. If for the majority of the field, we are still causing harm. Uh, And I say that just from my own experiences, like I've, I've walked away from many jobs when I was working to be a technician because I would not do what they said. And Mm -hmm. I did not understand why escape extinction was being used with a two-year-old to do a puzzle. It just didn't make any sense to me. Um, And something funny from my evaluation is the, the, the psychologist asked me if I had a strong sense of justice uh, which is very like, typical in, in autistic people. I'm like, well, no, like, I don't really care about politics. And I'm like, oh, like, all I do <laughs> is advocacy rights for autistic people. Like, yes, you're right. I have left many jobs and like stuck it to the man many times at, at companies that I wouldn't do what they asked me to. So, yes, definitely <laughs> a strong sense of justice. <laughs> I can relate to that. I mean, the only diagnosis that I have is, you know, a general anxiety disorder. I've had it my entire life, but I can relate to a lot of like the symptoms of autism and whether that's symptoms of my anxiety or just similar characteristics. But I get like the justice thing. I was joking with some people the other day of like, oh, yeah, like when I was in fourth grade, I was petitioning the school to test our water fountains because I thought they tasted different. And so I was like, you need to test this for lead. And I made a petition. In fifth grade, I was petitioning. Um, This one was a little less quiet because I was shamed, but like I had gotten my period in fifth grade and the school was not prepared for that at all. And so I had to kind of unfortunately drive change because like, well... (laughs) I have it. So you need to provide the resources uh, in the bathrooms. In seventh grade, we were picketing outside because our teachers were giving too much homework where we we would have to bring three or four textbooks home and back because we couldn't leave them at our house, but we needed them for the homework and it was like crushing our backs. And then into adulthood with like leaving jobs and like sticking it, sticking it to the man. <laughs> like I think I can talk about it now because it's a few years removed and I'm not at this company anymore. But when, you know, the events that happened in 2020 with George Floyd being murdered, this former company didn't say anything. And I emailed all of the head people and I'm just like, you got to say something like you got to you got to put something out there like people are scared people are worried people are angry and i got into like a lot of trouble for that like i had to meet with so many people and they yelled at me <laughs> but i was just like i don't really care and i'm not saying this as a flex i'm just like i'm like you a lot of people are upset and, and people might quit so you should probably talk to them yeah i've been learning about how i 
have, like, such an amount of privilege that I've been able to push back in the jobs that I've had mm-hmm. and didn't have the fear of getting fired because I knew there was something I could I could fall back on. Mm-hmm. And I've really been realizing that a lot of people don't have that. So mm-hmm. I'll, sometimes on my page, I've said, you know, like, we have to speak up, we have to push back. But a lot of people don't have financial security to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I realized that the change that I'm trying to have happen in the field is not going to happen on my timeline because there's mm-hmm. barriers out there that I, I can't push away for people. And so all I can do is continue to model my practice and to continue to share a different way. And um, I talk a lot about this with Carissa, the ABA ginger, about how I believe that we have to be showing our practice and not just telling it. Because I mm-hmm. think that I've fallen into the idea of I have to tell someone what they have to do instead of just showing a different way. There was a situation last year where I was seeing a client at a school and they were making no accommodations, none. And so they were giving him fifth grade reading material when he was just starting to identify sight words. And it, mm-hmm. just, didn't, it just didn't make any sense. I'm like, what is happening? Mm-hmm. And so my response was to take the IEP and highlight all the violations they were doing and send it to the principal <laughs> and then I was promptly asked not to come back to the school yeah and so I learned that like I really have to show the change um and not just like tell the change to people mm-hmm. like just live aligned in my values and show that there's a different way and then hopefully you know people will follow which I've seen has happened in the places where I took a strong stance and said no there was change and yes mm-hmm. I've been asked to a couple of times, even as a couple of weeks ago, I was let go from a company that I was working with part-time um, because mm-hmm. I wouldn't provide physical prompting without assent. And the director had said, well, then I can't have you training our staff to do that. And so you can't be here anymore. And I said, okay, no problem. And I walked away easily because when I, you know, I was going full-time into my company anyway, mm-hmm. but because I stuck to my values and I stuck to what mattered to me. And I hope that I planted a seed in some way that mm-hmm. there is a different way to do this. I think you bring up two points. So like one, the point of living in your values and just showing instead of telling, I think that's a really good point. Um, and I think advice that I should probably take more also, because to me, showing and telling is the same, like just in my brain, I'm like, oh, that's the same thing. But once you start explaining it out, I'm like, okay, yeah, I I guess I could see how I'm telling instead of showing. So I'm going to take that advice. But then the privilege piece, and we've talked about this a little bit, even though this is coming, I'm a white woman, I'm cisgendered, heterosexual, and I'm married, I live in like a very comfortable house, you know, like we own a house. So I come from a lot of privilege. I don't know how to word it right. But like, instead of shying away from that, That's almost why I choose to speak up because I have that privilege. And so I would rather, so the instance that I said with George Floyd, it had kind of come up because a coworker who didn't have as stable uh, situation as I did uh, was really affected by it. And she was really upset, but she didn't really have, she was kind of afraid to speak up. So I'm like, well, I'll do it. And I think that kind of goes back to like the justice piece of originally I used to shy away from speaking up and saying those things because of confrontation or like, well, who am I to speak up? Especially when it's coming to race, like I'm, I'm white, you know, I should just shut up and listen. But what I found is a few things like because I have the privilege, there's more reason for me to stick up for other people or at least put in the work instead of having, you know, especially like a black woman putting in the work because I have that safety net that like, yeah, if I was let go from that company, I wouldn't I wouldn't have been awesome because I was not financially secure, but I would have been okay because then the other part of me is back to like my anxiety, like I'll perseverate on these injustices, even though it doesn't feel comfortable speaking up in that moment, I'll feel more uncomfortable that I didn't say something 
Um, and I'll perseverate on it of like, oh, why didn't I say this? Or I could have said that or, and so I've found at least to squash some of my anxiety of like, as long as I say something, it's not going to be perfect. I'm not going to cite all of the research that I need to cite or pull up all these like scientific journals and facts and dates and whatever argument that I'm in. But as long as I said something that stays in line with my values and what I have learned, you know, over the years is far better than keeping my mouth shut and like privately perseverating on, on these things. So that's kind of how I, I move through. And then the things that irk me, but don't necessarily like butt up against like my values or what I think is especially important, I tend to just stay out of those. I think that back to Carissa, uh, we've had a lot of conversations of like, there are things that I don't agree with or like, but I'm going to like reserve my energy for like the big things I want to speak out on. Because if I speak out on every little thing that bothers me, I will burn myself out. I know this is like, this conversation is like spread in like, 20 different peninsulas or 20 different lady fingers. There you go. There's a food <laughs> pun or uh Buddha's hand, right? That's the, the fruit that has like the little, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think these conversations are important to have because I think one thing I've been struggling with is that I had a great deal of privilege in getting to receive my diagnosis. I, you know, initially went through insurance for the misdiagnosis I received, and then Mm -hmm. I paid out of pocket to have the second diagnosis where I received um, my autism diagnosis. And, you know, the majority of people don't have that privilege. And Mm -hmm. so I, I very much see that I now, I believe, have a duty to help other other people who are trying to get a diagnosis and also want to emphasize that I am someone who fully believes that self-diagnosis is completely valid because it is so inaccessible to be able to get a diagnosis Mm -hmm. Um, and it just makes it so hard within you know within these insurance companies to try and get something that's covered Um, and so I'm very much grateful that I had the resources to receive the diagnosis and to learn this about myself and now feel like I have a very strong, you know, duty to help other people so they can do the same. That's a really good point. And I I think that's one of my long-term goals also is partnering with neurologists, maybe even like Boston Children's Hospital, because I have a lot of clients that go there to kind of work through the other half of it. So once you get your diagnosis, I feel like they get the 20-page report and at the end is some like recommendations but that doesn't really mean anything like i've seen they they put in you know get aba get speech uh contact um dds which is the uh, department of developmental services but there's no like context to it and so i'll get parents you know a couple years after the diagnosis and i'll be like oh are you signed up for a dds they're like no like i don't even know what that is and then i'll i'll go to explain it because At least in Massachusetts, I don't know how it is everywhere, but it helps pay for a lot of things like all the way up to like diapers, you know, like if if a doctor is quote unquote prescribing diapers because they have like overnight accidents and stuff, then they can get that covered. They can get Pediasure covered if there's like a feeding issue. And so they don't have to pay out of pocket for that. But I'm like, all these years you've been struggling because you're paying out of pocket for all these things where you could have gotten it covered. But yeah, just like understanding all of the services that are provided once you do get that diagnosis. Here in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, we have the same same thing. So medical assistance comes secondary once you receive that diagnosis. But here we have such a huge influx of children seeking a diagnosis that it's taking upwards of a year to receive mm. And so one of the main goals I have for myself in a way to give back is that in three to five years, I'd like to go back to school to get my PsyD so I can be a diagnostician, do it where I take, I take Medicaid, I take medical assistance so that these families who don't always have access to a diagnosis can hopefully receive one a little sooner. And yes, I'm one person, but my hope is that more people will go that route to be able to help these families that don't have access to the same level of support. I'm very excited for that news because I think 
that would be awesome because I think as much as that neurologist that you saw neurologist or psychologist psychologist so just like how you saw that psychologist that you finally felt validated I think you will be able to provide that for a lot more clients at an even younger age because you will be able to kind of pick out instead of just the casebook white boy like diagnosis that you'll be able to kind of help more of the female population I also have big plans to get I want to get like a neuropsych degree PhD eventually I have a lot of goals I have slightly too many goals (laughs) I could relate but that's awesome (laughs) now having this knowledge of how autism can present so differently um, like I've been reading Unmasking Autism by Devin Price Mm -hmm. I was reading blurbs of it to my fiance and he's like did you write this (laughs) so much of it is like personal experiences I've had but I think that especially within developmental pediatricians and psychologists who are diagnosing children um, there's a miss of information of the different presentations that autism can have and how the characteristics Mm -hmm. can be so so different from person to person and I think a lot about had I been diagnosed as you know, a young child, would my trajectory have been different? You know, mm-hmm. might I have avoided the eating disorder or the alcoholism. I don't know. I can't say. Right. What I can say is that this is definitely fuel to help children and especially, especially women um, mm-hmm. understand themselves and that, you know, differences do- isn't, aren't bad. It's not wrong. It's just differences. My brain operates in a different way. And knowing that I have so much more self-confidence and awareness just in the, you know, the few months I've been diagnosed than I've had in my entire life. Mm -hmm. I finally have this acceptance that I've always been whole just the way I am, but now I have the language to talk about the challenges that I do have in life. I'm just so grateful to have received the diagnosis. Cheers to that. That was that was a very sweet ending for our entree. I think we should stay on the sweet train and jump over to dessert. What was your happiest moment with a client? So I would say working with that child who I was the personal care assistant for in my undergrad, uh, there was a moment when he was Uh, playing with trains, Thomas and friends. And at this point he was six years old and didn't have a whole lot of vocal speech. He had an AAC device that he used and would use some gestures. But when I was sitting there playing trains with him, I was listening and I, and I thought that I heard him say like, Rusty goes up the hill. And so I repeated it back. And there was this moment where his eyes lit up and he turned and he looked at me. And it was this moment of like, from what I, how I perceive it as him seeing that I see him and that what mm-hmm. he matters. And from that point, he would continue to to say the like the little phrase and so I started pulling them out. And then I would Google them and I found that he was scripting entire shows from Thomas and Friends. Mm-hmm. And so I would come to our sessions with the scripts printed out and he would say a line from memorization that I would say the next line wow. from that place. You know, he he is communicating vocally now. And I mm-hmm. really think it's because I, well, now I know he was a Gestalt language processor and just mm-hmm. processed language in a different way. But by meeting him where he was at, we were able to build a connection and from there expand upon the skills that he had. And it was really by taking the time to get to know and to see him and see what mattered. And mm-hmm. I think about what would have been missed if I had brought him to the table to do to do work as we typically right. think of ABA and how that connection wouldn't have been built the same way. So for mm-hmm. me, it's really that moment of seeing when I take a child-led approach to ABA, the, you know, the places we can go are endless. I love it because that echoes or mirrors a lot of my happiest moments of pulling out those words and those phrases from clients. And it's kind of funny because now my ears have become, I was always a really good listener. Like I could pick up what people were saying rooms away um, to my parents' detriment, uh, especially if my name was mentioned or one of my siblings' names, because of course I wanted the dirt on them also. 
But doing this job, you know, my ears have become very attuned to what kids are saying, even when they're not fully articulating or it's not even a full word or a full phrase or anything. And it's really fun to repeat them. And they like look at you like, oh, my goodness, that is what I said. Like somebody finally gets it. And then to flip back over to parents when they're new to to all of this or at least new to me and they're like oh you know like he doesn't really speak and I'll be like um (laughs) I heard no or give me more or you know like little phrases and they're like you heard that and I was like oh yeah like he he or she or they said a lot and I'll sit there and not because I also have a good memory and so I'll like recite things that they've said and they or like mind blown because they're like oh I thought it was just jargon I thought it was just like babbling and I'm like oh no there's there's words and they're usually used very like functionally you know like a kid was jumping up and down and I think he said something like higher because he was jumping I was like oh yeah he's just he's telling himself jump higher and the parents like oh I thought he was just saying like hi yeah and I'm like no he said higher and then you say it to the kid and they whip around and look at you and it's it's one of my favorite expressions if you ask me what my favorite expression is it is when a child realizes that you understood what they said they call that the bingo moment when there's Mm. that connection when they look up and it's and you had said the phrase or acknowledged the phrase that was meaningful to them so those that's a big reason why I do the work that I do and another quick one that I'll share is that I have a client who um he stems by jumping up and down and flapping his hands. And when I first started working with him, I started doing it with him. And there was Mm -hmm. that moment again, where he looked up and he's like, Oh, like, this is this is okay for you. And it's okay for me. And we're going to do it together. And Mm -hmm. so now every time I arrive for sessions, he immediately does it (laughs) with him. Um, And just that for me, any moment where I get to build connection with a child and even better than that, see a parent connect with their child in a way that Mm -hmm. they had before is really like the meat and potatoes for a food reference of why (laughs) the work that I do. Yes. Yes. I mean, everyone, every human just wants to be seen and validated. So anything that you can do to let our kids be seen and heard and validated that they are a full human is is just it's the best that's why I love this job (laughs) so we are at our nightcap I think this would be a good opportunity if you could tell the listeners more about the neurodiversity affirming provider meetup that you have started in Philly with Jamie from Speech Baby LLC Yeah, absolutely. So working in early intervention for so many years, I really missed collaborating with other providers. And I was always that annoying provider on the team that would call the other therapists to talk about the case outside of session time. But what I found is I, you know, created a network of providers who I trust. And when I first got on Instagram and created um, Unfurling Littles, my account and now my business, I didn't realize how many people were doing something so similar and taking a child-led approach to ABA, using neurodiverse affirming practices. Um, And so I wanted to see if I could build that community I found on Instagram in real life um, Mm -hmm. in person. And so I reached out to Jamie, who I had been connected with through my friend Kelsey, who has a company, um, Be Well OT, here in Philly. And I asked if she would want to do it with me because I always believe that, you know, two providers is better than one provider. Again, that collaboration piece is so important to me. And so the goal was to create a network of providers who believed in neurodiverse affirming practices for children and adults. And so we meet quarterly. Right now we're just meeting at my house in Roxborough, (laughs) which I love hosting here. And it's been amazing. I mean, we have some dentists in our group. We have some doctors now, psychologists, occupational therapists, physical therapists, speech therapists, and some behavior analysts, and even some technicians. Uh, And at our next group, we're going to even have some parents join us. And so for me, community is really important because like I said, you know, people need people who are going Mm -hmm. through something similar. You know, I need people in my life who are also sober. I need people in my life who 
who are autistic. I need people in my life who share the same interests as me. I need people in my life who are doing something similar in their fields um, because if not, you know, I, I feel alone in what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And so the goal of creating the group was really to help reduce that barrier of having providers that you trust and can rely on and can, you know, collaborate with. Cause I have learned so much since started it since starting it and have built so many meaningful connections that I then get to help families um, create meaningful connections with providers that I can trust. And that's probably really good for like referrals or like if a child is having a hard time at, at a dentist, you can be like, there's a dentist for you right here. Yeah, that's good. Exactly. Once you started posting about that, I was very jealous that I wasn't in Philly because it sounds like a lot of fun. So if anyone is close to Philly, please go and rub it in my face. (laughs) (laughs) We do meetings quarterly. So every three Mm -hmm. months right now, we might move it up to monthly at some point, but right now Mm -hmm. we're doing quarterly meetups. Awesome. So is there... I think we've referenced your Instagram before, but if you could just tell us your Instagram handle and where listeners can find out more about you and your dissemination efforts. Sure. So yeah, my Instagram handle is unfurling littles and my website is unfurlinglittles.com. So super, super easy. And <laughs> my my email is maggie.h at unfurlinglittles.com. So if you Google unfurling littles, something will pop up related to me and <laughs> you, can, um, you can contact me best. Awesome. All right. Well, Maggie, thank you so much for sharing a bite with us. For our listeners, please follow Maggie. I will put all of her links in the show notes and then also on my website. You can find me on Instagram at rosieeatsbx or my website, rosiebx.com. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and subscribe so other people, like-minded people, can find this show and listen to it. Um, and until our next meal, bye. Bye. Bye.